This is the Great Human Chronicle. I'm on Vic. One. Buenos Aires, Nacochia, 1892. It was Velasquez. He had tried to get Francisca Roja to marry him over and over and over. And when she refused, or at least when she refused this time around, this is how he repaid it. As Roja was entering her house, she saw Velasquez run out of it from the other side. Something wasn't right. She ran after him, but all she got in return was a slash on the neck. And while it wasn't fatal, it wasn't even that bad. It left a scar. A scar that was visible when she got to her room and saw her six-year-old son and four-year-old daughter dead, no, murdered. It was Velasquez. Two, Paris, 10 years earlier, 1880. A major issue that the police systems of the world faced in 1880 was that they could do very little about repeat offenders. People would enter prison and then leave and then come back as a new person. And I don't mean that in some spiritual sort of way. I mean that literally. People would get arrested again and they would just pretend to be a different person with a different name. And at that point, what could the police do? One French police officer had a solution. Alphonse Bertillon came up with a system of measurements that measured dimensions of different bones. It was based on the idea that once the bones grow to their final size, they stay the same forever. But this only got you so far because not every criminal was a grown man and coincidences happened and twins happened and I guess all twins are coincidences but I mean except, not the point you get the point it wasn't a proper system but what else were the police supposed to do? Three Tokyo another decade earlier Henry Foles knew how to get around. The Scottish missionary moved around Scotland, college to college, and then country to country, as he went from Beath to Darjeeling to Fenton to Aberdeen to Tokyo. And when he was in Tokyo, he was a bit of a superstar. He set up lifeguard stations and societies for the blind. He set up schools, taught Japanese surgeons Joseph Lister's methods, and he even stopped a plague and an epidemic. One day, while walking around with an American archaeologist through an excavation site, he observed handprints on an ancient pot. And I mean capital A ancient pot. Thousands of years later, the ridges of the potter's hands were still on this pot. 
and Henry looked at his friend's hands and then his own and he had a hunch. No, actually, at this point he was pretty convinced. Henry Foles believed that every person's fingerprints in this world were unique. He began collecting fingerprints and not just human fingerprints but monkeys as well. And in February of 1880, he sent a letter to Charles Darwin asking for his help to promote his ideas about the fingerprint identification scheme. But Darwin declined. He was too old at this point. And instead, he sent the letter to his relative, Francis Galton. I feel like I must tell you that when Francis Galton revealed his own groundbreaking work on fingerprints, he said that he did not pay attention to this letter. Fole's ideas were largely ideas. It was Galton that made them a reality. At the very least, it was Galton who made the theories a reality. They didn't have physical proof yet, but the theories were real now. They weren't just ideas. And Galton only started his work on fingerprints eight years after the letter. And so, it is safe to say that Galton probably did not care about that letter. But for what it's worth, Henry Foles' letter reached Galton. And Henry Foles believed that every fingerprint was unique. 4. Croatia Another decade earlier, 1858 Ivan Vucetic Kovacevic was born a decade before Henry Foles went to Tokyo. As the eldest of 11 children, he only had elementary school education, after which he learned his father's trade as a cooper. And if you had to describe him in one sentence, you'd call him just an all-around bright kid. In 1882, while Foles and Bertillon were working on their systems in Tokyo and Paris, 24-year-old Ivan Vucetic left his little island in the Adriatic Sea and landed on the shores of Argentina. Ivan, or I guess Juan because he changed his name to the Spanish version, worked here and there before joining the Buenos Aires police. There, he did a little bit of everything. Accounting, statistics, daily maintenance until he was put in charge of identification through the Bertillon system. By this point, Bertillon's system was being used all around Europe and the Argentinians wanted to follow suit. Musitich, though, had been reading the works of one Francis Galton, who postulated that a fingerprint, and I quote, was perennial, immutable, and infinitely unique. But this was just a theory, and Juan wanted to prove him right. He took the fingerprints of 23 detainees in the dungeons of the police headquarters, and then he went to all the detainees in the nearby prisons. In a year, 1,462 people had been booked. 5. Buenos Aires, Necochea, 1892 It was Velasquez, 
That's what Francisca Rojas said over and over as she cried over the bodies of her own dead children. They had been killed by this monster who was jealous of Rojas' lover. Francisca barely survived herself with a not very deep cut, but the emotional scars seemed a lot deeper. Inspector Alvarez and his crew arrested Velasquez as he pled his innocence. He was beat up, tortured, and they even brought the two dead bodies in front of him. But still, he refused to admit his guilt. And so they had to bring Roja in front of him. And she accused him to his face. Abuse after abuse, insult after insult. She broke down and started to cry. And in her frustration, she screamed that Velasquez had beaten her up before he cut her. But that's where the plan failed. There were no signs of body blows. She was lying. Inspector Alvarez became suspicious. He had worked with Vusitich in the past, and so he did something that has left its imprint on the history of criminology forever. He went to Roja's bedroom door and tore a piece of wood with a bloodstained mark. And using all he had learned from his Croatian boss, he realized that it wasn't Velasquez. It was never Velasquez. The bloody fingerprint was Roja's. She had murdered her own children. And Vusitich had proven Colton right. And that's the story of how an Argentine inspector, with the help of a Croatian anthropologist who read about discoveries in a London scientific journal, by a professor who received a letter from a Scottish missionary in Japan and some information about people in India, solved the first ever murder mystery using fingerprints. Francisca Roja murdered her children that night in 1892. But what it took to catch her started long before, when some potter somewhere left his little mark on a little pot some thousand years earlier. Hello, this is a rerun as it says in the notes, uh, so there's not much for me to say. I hope you like this. If you like this, you'll probably like all the other episodes we have here. I'm currently on vacation and I'll be here for a week or so more and then I'll go back to work. So yeah, there should be new episodes coming down the pipeline. I have, I think, the next three planned, but uh, the research is just taking long and I'm a little tired and burnt out. So that's why this is here. If you like this, uh, one point that I did make in the original broadcast in this section was that uh, the actual stories of how fingerprints became part of criminology is much, much bigger and there's a lot of moving parts. So I hope I did a decent job of giving you that feeling of how many people were working on this. But there's, it's a much bigger story, a much more fascinating story that I think you should all like check out. Uh, yeah, great interview us on the Apple Podcast and Spotify apps. It takes two seconds and does so, so, so much for this podcast. Um, and if you like this stuff, you like our Instagram at Creative and Chronicle. There's so much exclusive content going there constantly. Yeah, that's all. I'm going to go rest now. I'll see you in two weeks.
This episode of The Great Human Chronicle was written, edited, researched, produced, performed, and directed by Anvik Singh. The music in this episode is by Howard Harper Barnes, Brightown Orchestra, Amarnath Cave, Oi, Lemiotoy, and Synthrandi. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, and your attention. <laughs> <laughs>